Welcome everyone to Future Imagined, a foresight podcast dedicated to futures thinking. I'm your host, Joe Lepore, a global foresight lead for North America. Today we are talking about the future of food. As you know, this podcast is brought to you by Mars Wrigley, a treats and snacks company. So this is what we talk about almost every day. How do we create more of those food products that people will want in the future? How do we make sure that those food options span their needs, what they desire, but also what is better for them? And how do we create that in a way that is less detrimental to the environment? To explore the future of food for people and for our industry, we have an all-star panel lined up for you today with some food revolutionaries. Welcome to the show. My name is Seth Goldman, and uh, I guess my first foray into food was as the co-founder of Honest Tea back in 1998, and we scaled that brand. Also launched Honest Kids, which is a kid-friendly version of Honest Tea, you know, less lower-calorie organic drink. And then in 2015, I took on the role of executive chair of Beyond Meat and helped scale that business, taking it international and helping to take it public. And then in 2020, I launched a new brand called Eat the Change, which is a climate-friendly line of snacks. And our mantra is snack to the future. And uh, happy to talk about all the different ways our food system needs to change and how we're trying to change it. Hi everyone, Andrew Loder. So my first interactions with food began very early in my life on a farm. So it's great having started out on the organic side of it. I had a long career with Mars Wrigley actually, 20 plus years there. And in the last few years, I've been starting a new business called Open Way Food Co, which is essentially creating a platform for founders to be able to prosper with the amazing products using more sustainable practices and getting them to scale and helping these founders collaborate and work together so they can actually start to eat into mainstream foods and and, and make healthy food easier is essentially what we're trying to do. And I think there's certainly a lot of learnings that we can sort of take from big business to help smaller businesses prosper in this space and people eat healthier. I'm Caitlin, I'm the founder of Pulp Pantry. Super excited to join you all here today. I actually started my career in environmental advocacy. So really getting into more so, how do we communicate climate science to everyday public? And when I was, you know, just graduating from undergrad university, actually, I had kind of stumbled upon the issue of food waste, but really saw firsthand how food processing and manufacturers across the US were really tasked with a challenge of what do we do with the organic byproducts from our manufacturing processes. And so started a company that actually tackles food waste directly through essentially partnerships with large-scale suppliers that have volumes of vegetable and fruit byproduct to make accessible snack and pantry staples for everyday consumers. And just excited to be here with you all and dive more into some of those issues. Let's start by talking a little bit about the future. And I don't think you can talk about the future and food without talking about people and how people are starting to change their habits and their behaviors around what they eat. One thing that we know is that they are wanting to choose those products that are better for them, better for their community, and better for the planet. And they're doing a lot of that by researching more. They're educating themselves, they're coaching themselves, they're searching out who and what they can buy that meets their values and their goals. 
So we're seeing a lot of really fabulous trends that are being driven in the food space around planet-friendly, ethically sourced, food that works harder to keep up with your lifestyle, so infused with advanced functional ingredients, food that is produced more naturally and organically, and food that is regenerative and repurposes ingredients and, and makes the most out of our ecosystem. It's relatively easy for people to access information about what they can buy, it's probably less easier for them to actually make the choices to buy those better options, mainly because they're not always accessible and they're not always affordable. I'd love to start with your take on those values that people are enacting in their choices. Seth, I'll start with you because you've been in the industry for a while now and you know over two decades creating these products that consumers can buy, that can access to better represent their goals and their lifestyle changes. What are some of those big shifts that you're seeing and how people are behaving? So first of all, it's wonderful that people are aspiring to eat more in line with their values. That's certainly something we want to encourage. But I think one challenge is it's very hard for the consumer to understand what actually is happening. And because a company, you can say almost anything about almost any, <laughs> and you can use the word natural, you can throw out terms like regenerative, which aren't well clearly defined. And so what is happening is there are certain things consumers just intuitively understand are better. And so obviously, a term like organic is now gaining currency. It has a standard certification and standard brand mark that does help. It's ironic that plant-based is somewhat controversial because I obviously all the environmental data shows that it's better and certainly the health data too. But, you know, a, an established industry like the meat industry will try to cast some shade on that's claiming its process. So the best outcome is where consumers can really gain information and try to understand and where companies have some accountability for their claims or have to back them up. But it's still evolving for sure. And, and of course, our brand, Eat the Change, is absolutely focused on trying to empower and inform consumers about the environmental impact their choices make. But it's, I would say, still very much a work in progress. I was looking up organic food before this podcast and, you know, the whole history of how it started in the 1940s. So some of these things are very slowly evolving inside of our industry and then evolving to the point where consumers understand them. I like how you said that intuitively. I feel like, Seth, you also touched on something that, Andrew, I'd love to get your take on, which is clearly defining what the product is and clearly substantiating those claims with your portfolio of products that you have that leverage functional ingredients and these things that are added into the products. Is that an important part of the proposition as to make sure that that credibility is there? It's very hard for consumers to understand and I think almost trust what's being said about particular foods because you, know, you can spin a, a one little element of a food or a brand that is strong but there might be another a number of other elements that aren't strong. And so I think getting a balanced product that you're proud of, and which is why, you know, working with founders like I'm working with is really exciting because, you know, the products are genuine and authentic. We've got a brand called Red Tractor, which is really an oatmeal brand, but we're actually adding some functional ingredients into that product. So protein or some collagen or whatever that might be. And for what you would consider the most boring product in the world, oats, we're starting to now get interest in particularly in the US with sprouts picking it up. But I think the challenge I'd leave us with is, you know, what is healthy or better for me is different for Caitlin and is different for Seth. And I think that's the other challenge that we have in this space is defining what is better for you or better for me, because everyone has a different angle on what they're looking for, because each of us are different. And so 
trying to find what works for a mass population versus a niche population, I think it's just one of the other challenges we have as we develop healthier foods. Yeah, and what is great tasting as well, right? Because a lot of these changes that we're trying to build into better-for-you snacking or more sustainable snacking, the end consumer wants it to be obviously affordable, accessible, but also function in the same way that their other product was functioning and to taste just as good. So, Caitlin, I had the pleasure of tasting your amazing chips at the uh, Wall Street Journal Future of Everything Festival, very aptly named. I feel like with Pulp Pantry, what you've created is a really nice, easy, delicious switch. People who are trying to just change what they're doing to make it a better choice for me, better choice for the planet. Was that an important draw card when you were sort of identifying, you know, what do we do with this fruit and vegetable pulp? It's interesting when you give people a trade-off that they can really buy into their values without sacrificing things like taste, things like convenience that at the end of the day, those are going to be the top purchasing drivers, right? And maybe sustainability comes as a bit of an afterthought. I feel like giving people the option to buy into something that makes them feel part of a bigger movement and the change they want to see in the world, they'll largely choose that option so long as the elements of taste and convenience are still there. And I think about myself as a consumer, you know, my anxieties currently are around plastic pollution and climate change. And so those are key drivers for my personal purchasing habits. And I'm largely loyal to brands that put the stake in the ground that they're part of the change that I want to see in the world. That's what we're looking to do with Pulp Pantry as well as tackling issues with food waste, tackling issues associated with climate change, having that third party verification, being upcycled certified to show people that, you know, we're really transparent about where we're actually sourcing our ingredients and the impact that we're making in the world. I think those are becoming of more importance to consumers, especially because greenwashing is a very real thing. And I guess the last thing I want to add is that brands we've seen can be cultural change agents. There's more people listening and reading packaging and engaging with brands on an individual level. So it's really cool to just see that people are willing to go a bit above and beyond for brands that they feel align with their values. Yeah, it's an interesting point, too, that consumers are willing to make trade-offs and are willing to make changes, and in particular to those brands who they believe are credibly making a positive impact. So I'd love to touch on something that you said there, which was brands have the power, we know, to influence But there's something in that where a lot of brands that are creating products in this space are owned by big multinational conglomerates. And Seth, you can probably tell where I'm going with this. (laughs) Um, Obviously, you know, you can create an amazing product like Honest Tea, but then when it sits underneath the Coca-Cola company, they will be ultimately making a decision that's right for the balance of their entire organization. It's a very different mantra that then is applied to that brand. So how do brands, founders, companies, how should we be thinking about this? Yeah, well, I think it's important to recognize this is there's certainly not a straight line on these things. And with Honest Tea, we certainly aspire to democratize organics, right? That was the goal, to take it from just the natural food niche to a much broader audience. And we did. We expanded from being in 15,000 stores to over 150,000 stores. And we got our product into places like McDonald's and Wendy's and Subway and Chick-fil-A. And then just recently, just the past few weeks, Coca-Cola decided they were going to be discontinuing Honest Tea, which was an unfortunate development. But I think obviously it was a decision they have had the right to do since I'm no longer connected to the brand. But you know, a friend of mine put it really well that we did make a lot of inroads with organic and now there'll be other brands that'll be able to still capture that audience. And frankly, you know, 
Eat the Change announced we are going to be launching our own organic bottled tea brand to, to, because the audience didn't go away. Just because Coca-Cola decided it wasn't a priority for them, it didn't mean people stopped wanting organic bottled tea. And it didn't mean that the farmers who committed to this path aren't still growing amazing tea. So just because Coca-Cola is stepping aside from this market opportunity doesn't mean the impact or the audience disappears. It is all, you know, I'd say it's just an evolutionary process. And while Honest Kids is continuing to do important things as a brand, we'll find another way to address that audience with a new brand for Meet the Change. Right. And so that's where I think consumers, sometimes we do have a tendency to buy what's familiar. And I think that's the brand loyalty that you spoke of, Caitlin. But then there is also an openness to try new things, to try new brands, new products that help to meet those needs that consumers have, where they'll be more open particularly if there's a backstory to it. So Andrew, I'd love to go back to what you mentioned before, where you're pulling in these founders and these people who have created their brands, like similar to what we were just talking about, where you have this idea that meets a need in the market that you're seeing activated. And so you've pulled those founders together. So how important is it that you at least try to stay true to what their original idea was? It's significant to make sure that you maintain the story of what you're trying to build. And, you know, I really like what Caitlin's speaking about. It's the brand purpose that lives. And I think the opportunity that we have really is to help these founders achieve what they thought they might achieve in 15 years, that we can do it together in five. And that comes from, you know, both building the brands out, but then building the message out and the stories out and the sustainability side of things or the community side of things that we want to drive harder. So it's an accelerant really to an ESG program by having different passion points throughout our business that are coming together and um, certainly keeping everyone involved in that is going to be really important for us. And I guess the tricky part is making sure it works for everyone because not everyone wants the same thing. And yeah, some founders do want a clean exit and some founders do want to stay involved. And so we've found a nice spot so far where all the founders are quite happy with their role in the organisation, that they're maintaining their particular passion point. And we're probably taking away a lot of the admin and the sales sort of interactions and supply chain challenge, which we all know is is significant today, away so that it can actually be better at the bits that we want them to be better at, which is backing the cause that we want to back or the sustainability lens that we want to be driving. So to a degree, I think it's making the founders more powerful by taking away the 80% of the admin and the, the hardship of running a business and cash management and all these types of things into a group where it's safer and we've got some organizational capabilities to be able to do let them do the best bits. And um, I think that's going to be hard to maintain forever, obviously. And that's, I think, Seth's point that It's not going to be set and that's going to work like that forever. We'll scale up and things will change as well. Amazing. Looking forward to seeing what you do with the company, Andrew. So I'd love to go back to talking about the industry because I feel like the food industry makes it very difficult and very confusing for the everyday person in a lot of ways. So I was looking back at the food pyramid, but originally it started off in 1979 as the hassle-free daily food guide, hassle-free. Then about 10 years later or so, it changed into the food wheel. Then it became the pyramid in 1994. Then we changed it in 2005 to My Pyramid Food Guidance System. Very catchy. And now it's the My Plate graphic. And then the composition of those products and even the conversations around what is good to eat, what is not good to eat. There's a lot for consumers to have to keep up with. And, you know, we're not talking about small fry. We're talking about the food industry, which is 10% of global GDP. So it's big money, it's big business. 
So this thing that is the food industry, it's very complex. It's very rooted in the way that it has always been. And it takes a very long time, 30 to 50 years, to create significant change in that industry. Seth, I'd love to get your take on this, you know, specifically with, you know, everything that you're doing with Beyond Meat and Plant Burger. So how do you come in and really shift how the industry operates? Yeah, well, it really does start with the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur has to come up with a different way to do things. And then the entrepreneur has to get traction. So it's not hard to come up with new ideas. It's hard to get traction. And then if we succeed, we create enough pressure for our competitors so that they feel uncomfortable not following us. And you know, you can look at Honest Kids as a great example of that. We came into that category back in 2006. Everything was 100 calories. Everything was made with high fructose corn syrup. And we just started, and we were priced much higher than the rest of the category, but we just started stealing lots of share. And then all of a sudden you saw the big players move away from high fructose corn syrup to lower their calorie count. And so that really was a transformational evolution. And then with respect to Beyond Meat, you saw basically the meat category, the meat counter only had animal carcasses, dead animals in it. And we made a pitch to the grocery buyers, the, in, in particular, the meat department said, we want to be part of that spectrum. We wanted plant-based protein to be on the continuum. And by gaining that shelf space, we had access now, not just to the 4% of the audience that's vegan or vegetarian, but to the much broader audience. And we started to see real conversion. Not everyone became a vegetarian. That wasn't the goal, but people became much more flexitarian. And so when you start to create that kind of volume, the big companies, it gets their attention and they'll start to follow. I'm convinced the big companies will not take these steps on their own. They're just too set in their ways. They aren't creative. And I saw with all respect to Coca-Cola, you know, innovation there often meant, can we make a cherry lime Coca-Cola or a diet cherry lime? But it's all within the same box. They're not getting out of their paradigm to think differently. And that's what the entrepreneur needs to do. And of course, not every entrepreneur succeeds. And I think just Joe, building on that, the entrepreneur that Seth's speaking about is creating versus it's hard in the bigger companies because you're protecting. And it's such a different mindset that you can lean into, right? In terms of what products and development can happen. I think the other big thing that can change is helping educate the retailers because clearly the retailers don't have really clear category management programs and they're not in terms of even how they lay out the shelf or how the shopper shops. And there's plenty of examples where mainstream shoppers and consumers don't even go to the health section still or the health aisle. And so how do we help educate the retailers because we want to get people to sort of be able to understand where do I go to get those products? Then when they get there, we get to our point of have we got the right product, the right price, and is this accessible for them and easy enough for them to understand? I think it's such an important point, particularly on the retailer and those avenues where we can get to the consumer or to the shopper to try to create that access and affordability even. Caitlin, I'd love to get your take on that, you know, both as an entrepreneur, but also I'm sure that you've had to do your fair amount of pitches and not just to Shark Tank, but also to retailers to get that support. So how do you do that effectively? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting because there's this idea of like innovating a new category of products. And then, you know, there's also the balance of as an entrepreneur wanting to potentially take what you already know that consumers love and like what Seth did, consumers already love some of these beverage products, but how can we make it better? How can we make trade up the organic ingredients and whatnot and give consumers access to better options? 
And I feel like that really for Pulp Pantry, I mean, we specifically went out with the messaging of, you know, when you look at the veggie chip category, what do you see? It's potato starch or dried potato flakes with a sprinkle of vegetable powder. And the vegetable powder is really just coloring. There's zero grams of fiber, maybe one gram of fiber per serving in what should be really a high fiber product, a veggie chip. And I think for Pulp Pantry specifically, and, you know, just from my experience, I mean, the problem that we dove into was nine in 10 Americans don't eat their servings of fruits, vegetables, or fiber. And there was a study by the Union of Concerned Scientists, which to be honest, don't know how reputable that source is, but let's <laughs> let's dive in further there. But it showed that it's like really the fruit and vegetable and fiber access is actually, you know, they call it the $10 trillion problem because if every consumer in the United States were to eat their servings of fruits, vegetables, and fiber, we'd save hundreds of thousands of lives and billions, if not trillions of dollars in medical costs I'm just associated with kind of our poor diet. So, I mean, on a microcosm, you know, when you distill into what products can I launch with this overarching idea, which a lot of brands, I think probably eat the changes the same, you know, you start with an overarching concept of here's my mission, here's my vision for the future of our food system. But then you have to distill that down into individual products, right? You have to kind of distill it down to what does this product actually look like? What does this actually mean? And so for us, it was specifically looking at a category where there wasn't a ton of innovation, a ton of the brands that are veggie chips right now. It's the same old, same old private label brands that are sold, same products across every grocery store. And so finding ways that we could really offer what consumers were looking for, which was fresh vegetables being the first ingredient and offering an option that had five times the fiber of the traditional chip category with five grams of fiber per serving. So that's our approach. And it goes to both educating the consumers and kind of letting them know why this is a better option, both from a nutrition standpoint and sustainability standpoint, but then also educating retailers and why are we a challenger brand in this space versus just another me too kind of veggie chip product. And I think both of those things do go hand in hand. Yeah, it's really amazing what's happening with upcycled foods and waste-made foods or even, you know, ugly fruits and vegetables in the supermarkets and a greater flexibility in getting those to the end consumer who honestly doesn't care if their apple is too big. I mean, <laughs> let's get real. Upcycled certified logos are now on over 140 products. It's a great start. However, arguably, you could say that a lot of these opportunities are still very niche. They're still very small. They're the reason why a lot of the big companies don't invest in them because comparatively, people are still buying potato chips that are fried. So part of that is that we know humans are complex. They want everything. We want it to be easy. We want it to taste great. We want to just do what we've always been doing. But we also do care about these things. So what is the biggest thing that we need to tackle? Is it about consumer behavior and adoption of better habits? Is it about the gatekeeper, the retailer? Is it about big brands? Is it about more ingenuity? I'd love to get each of your take on that. Well, I do think it is adoption is a huge challenge. And, you know, we certainly see it the, the most vividly with plant-based meat, right? Because if you have a product that is nutritionally superior, environmentally advantaged, and tastes comparable, and you can get it to the same price point, then, you know, why wouldn't people switch? But there's, you know, you're tapping into a lot of cultural and even emotional things when you ask people to part with something that's literally been part of our culture and evolution for, you know, hundreds, even thousands of years. You've got to help give people the broader context. And of course, what's happening in the world sometimes accelerates that, right? So when you see global warming, when you see these heat waves and heat domes, and then you hear the health industry start to recognize the issues, consumers are more open to making those changes. And I think it's also interesting to look at what happens across society. So when people start recognizing, oh, my car doesn't have to be filled up on gas, or my hotel room doesn't have to be in a hotel, 
or my phone doesn't have to be plugged into a wall, they start to think more nimbly. And certainly that the rising generation is easier to adapt to it. So sometimes there's um, generational changes that have to happen at the same time for people to adopt. But as I say, sometimes these things feel like they're happening very slowly and then they happen very quickly. So I'm certainly not discouraged by the patterns. And I think to carry on to that is really, I mean, with adoption, it's education. I think at least in the upcycled foods industry, we've seen less than 10% of US consumers know what the word upcycled actually means. But when you do educate people about upcycling and its potential climate benefits, the majority of consumers that were surveyed indicate that they would desire to purchase more upcycled foods. And so it's kind of a piece of the adoption problem probably is how long does it take to really get that message and education out there? And I think a lot of that is driven by distribution. You know, if you're a brand that's becoming more and more ubiquitous and accessible, just having those additional eyes and those additional places that you can drive customers to and drive trial, I think that's really important. And for brands that are at that cutting edge of innovation, and like you said, can still be somewhat of a niche product. I mean, access to distribution is definitely a huge challenge. So I think it's all those pieces kind of combined that need to come together to really drive that critical mass like Seth is talking about. I think the education piece for me, Joe, is the main point that everyone's speaking about here. And I think finding the right medium to be able to do that is probably one of the breakthroughs because as we started out with, you know, it's quite confusing for people to sort of understand what is healthy and what do I trust? And and individually, there's lots of amazing stories on one element. So I think that that's probably the big breakthrough, but I think we'll, we'll know success whenever that comes, that people aren't actually talking about it and they're buying a burger that they actually don't realise that it's plant-based. I think we've just got to keep working collectively. And I actually like the fact that it's the smaller insurgent brands that drive it, to be honest, because back to our point early of creating versus protecting, these are the guys that are going to keep moving this forward until the, the scale becomes to a point where people it becomes more mainstream, but people don't actually realise the health benefits of some some of the thing and the medical sort of situation and industry. I think the supplements industry, which obviously has run its course for a long time, I think food needs to be replacing so many supplements over time, and that people are just having their daily diets. Instead of popping 10 pills, they're, they're just getting a better snack or they're getting a better meal. There's so much to do and there's so much science and education to come. And, and we, I guess the more we can come together to do that, then we start to break through. But yeah, it's a long way. I think if we're still here on doing podcasts, when we, when we crack it, we'll be, we'll be very successful. Yeah, well, I'd love to touch on what you just mentioned there, which I think is definitely a part of the future of the food industry, which is collaboration. So I think we can all agree that so much of the significant change in the industry comes from entrepreneurs and those people with the bravery, the ingenuity, the focus to be able to create products, to be able to recognize a problem and be so focused that they're going to go and solve it and create something for it. However, for us to get scalable change in the industry, we need the likes of Mars Wrigley, we need the likes of Coke to start to create similar products or similar offers so that everybody can start to move in that right direction. And I feel like we can't do it alone. So how do we start to bring more collaboration into the industry, whether it's through activating together or collaborating on thought leadership, sharing information, sharing ideas, connecting in with our consumers together so it's less about competition and more about positive progress? I would love to jump in there and share one example of, I think, collaboration that has at least benefited our business, which is you know, one of the leading snack food manufacturers recently, 
they've patented essentially a compostable film packaging that they're allowing us to license for free. And I think, you know, having an industry leader who obviously has the same needs as we do, a barrier, we need a strong barrier for a dry good and a chip product for it to be shelf stable and for compostable packaging to really be viable. And yet at the same time, we have this massive problem, right, with plastic packaging, where really it's the number one input for plastic pollution, especially when we're talking about lightweight films that end up typically in our waterways or in our environment more so than maybe other forms of plastic waste. And it was really amazing to me to see that, you know, an industry leader was willing to make that material accessible and affordable and is willing to allow us to be sourcing that material on the back end of their own purchase orders, if you will, as a smaller brand. And I think a lot of that was driven by just building relationships directly. And it's hard because it's a question of just how do you kind of scale that process of building those industry relationships, you know, building these new ideas for collaboration. And then, you know, on the other side, of course, for Pole Pantry, the biggest part of our business and kind of one of the fundamental things that drives really our product development is supplier relationships. And we've seen that entrepreneurs and, and organizations that really have, I think, leaders that have a perspective about, let's say, climate change or sustainability within their own companies. Those have been the companies that we've had the most success building collaboration and partnerships with. And so I kind of open up the question because I was still, I still question myself, like, how do we, how do we move beyond really those individual moments of connection and really find ways that we can all hopefully better support, for example, bringing more compostable packaging onto the market and making that more accessible for more brands. Definitely. And it could just start with something really, I say small, but it's not really that small, but it's about how do we start to band together to offer consumers more visibility of what's out there. And I'm thinking specifically, Seth, of your initiative around the Incredible Planet Challenge, which is a great example of how you can start to build that collaboration in the industry. Yeah. So every April we have a 21-day challenge where we partner with all types of other um, planet-friendly food brands, but not just food brands, actually packaging too. And we try to inspire in consumers all the little changes, all the nudges toward better environmental diets. And it could be everything from switching your dairy from cow-based to plant-based dairy, but it could also be making meals out of food that could would otherwise just be scrapped or composted helping people understand which foods are water efficient to help lighten their water footprint. And for us, you know, of course, we hope to build the Eat the Change brand, but it's really much broader. It's about changing behavior. And we're convinced that when people change their overall thinking, they'll certainly gravitate toward these kind of brands as well. I think the final point for me, Joe, would be reassessing what is intellectual property and, you know, where does competitive advantage start and finish? And historically, As we know, it's been a very competitive landscape in the food industry and people are very protective that we do this this way. But when I hear Caitlin's example on packaging, I'm like, really, is packaging going to be a competitive advantage for anyone? Let's just partner on that end of the spectrum and do your own thing on your brand messaging or your ingredients or your profile or your sourcing. So I think if we could sort of redefine, essentially, where does competitive advantage start and finish? And then where would a greater good be? Like, wouldn't that be an amazing, amazing breakthrough? One thing I'd add is it would be great if retailers made a policy of holding aside 10, 20% of their shelf space for innovators. And so, you know, big brands can buy shelf space, small innovative brands can't. And as a result, we often miss out on opportunities because we just can't fit the bill, but the consumer is end up being the loser in that. And so if retailers would make that a policy, it would, it would really help ensure that innovation continues to gain opportunity and exposure. 
Right, it's a great point. And often, obviously, inside of an impulse category in particular, you don't even buy off the shelf. You buy when you're disrupted and off location that's paid for by the company. So for consumers to make a change, they need to be able to see the change that's available to them. So with that train of thought, we'll end on one last question for each of you. I'd love to know what you envisage to be the true step change when we're thinking about the future of food. Like, What is that one bet that you would make that we really need to start focusing on or that energizes you personally? I think it gets back to the collaboration piece for me, I think is pretty critical to a step change. And obviously what I'm trying to do is exactly that, is collaborating with people sharing assets, for example, that's not my brand that's winning, I'm okay as long as there's a, a brand that's better for the environment or better for people that's winning and gaining that share of space in the stores that Seth's talking about or share of wallet that we want to achieve. So, so I think there's miles and miles of collaboration opportunities that we can jump into. Now, I know that's difficult for the big guys in the big end of town, but certainly for small to mid-tier players, there's opportunities to work together because we're not really competing with each other in this better for you food space. We're sort of competing with the rest of the space in store and share of mine and share of wallet. So I do think for more founders to be able to prosper, to get to the levels of success that, say, Caitlin and Seth have got to, you know, there's a lot that don't make it because they don't have the support and the infrastructure around them and their products are still fantastic, but they just haven't been able to find a way. And so if my little piece can be helping some of those guys make it through and sort of prosper, then, you know, that's what I'll be working on. I think that uh, there will be a reckoning eventually where people recognize the disproportionate impact livestock has on our ecosystem. And when I say disproportionate, let me give you this one statistic that's just kind of overwhelming. If you want to consider the body mass, the weight of all mammals on the planet, and then ask what percentage, not including humans, what percent of all mammals is livestock? So I'm talking about elephants, giraffes, squirrels, whales. Livestock accounts for 94% of the body mass of all mammals on the planet. And so it is so clearly out of balance. You've heard it said, well, plants and uh, animals can be part of a, a balanced ecosystem, not at 94%. And so it is driving so much impact. I think eventually, I hope it doesn't become politicized, but I think it, just like people used to deny climate, things would be increasingly hard for people to deny the role that livestock has on our water, on our energy use, on our land use. And so I hope and believe that recognition of that will start to inspire people to change. And like I said, I'm not, I don't expect the world to become vegan, but I do expect people will make choices themselves. And of course, as plant-based alternatives become both tastier and more nutritious and more price competitive, it'll be a, a much easier move to make. I would say, obviously, food waste is an issue that's super important to us. And I think in light of what's happening with the climate crisis, you know, the number one low-hanging fruit solution to tackle climate change is really to address food waste. And um, I think some of the inefficiencies in our food system, I know in 2020, I believe Project Drawdown released a report that really went to show that this is really a place where we can have kind of the quickest impact and change made towards just hopefully mitigating climate change. And I would say on top of that, you know, when we look forward into our food system in 2050 and the need to feed 10 billion people on planet Earth, there's approximately a 60% calorie gap right now. There's gonna be, of course, so many negative externalities associated with that calorie gap, whether it comes to, you know, food insecurity and hunger and sustainability. And I think 
addressing some of the inefficiencies in our food system is going to be one of the main ways that we can both address climate change and hopefully, I think, some of these big societal issues that we're going to be facing as well. So that's my call to action, I think, is hopefully more people getting engaged at a household level, at a supermarket level, at a food processing level, because food waste really does happen at home. And so hopefully empowering consumers to make a change, even if they feel as though they're just one drop in the bucket, you know, we really do need a critical mass of people tackling some of these kind of complex issues. What an inspiring group of people. We all rely on a healthy and sustainable food ecosystem, so we should all be invested in improving it, both in our business and in our daily lives. That doesn't always have to sit at odds with what we enjoy, what's affordable, and what's easy to buy. In fact, it shouldn't. But it should start with thinking about the low-hanging fruit. What small steps can we take today? With ideas to collaborate with our industry peers and with our retailers. And with confronting reality. Really looking at where the ecosystem needs help, as our panel said. You don't need to be an activist entrepreneur. You just need to look for the change that you want to see in the future. So, keep looking into the future. This is Joe. Stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Rickley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjares, with editing and sound design by Matha de Leon. <laughs>